Hey gang, long time no see. It's been a couple weeks uh, since we've been in First Peter, since um, I have been out of the office. I haven't been vacationing, but I've been working. Uh, so last week I was with Dan Price, um, founder of Christ Hold Fast. We were together preaching at a teen conference, putting the gospel on blast. We were preaching on the parables last week together, preached 11 messages, all said and done. Uh, but because we were together doing that and we were so busy, we did not get to do the devotion last week or the Bible study for normies. Dan is still with me this week because we're preparing for the CHF New Jersey conference this Saturday. Ding! We're looking forward to that. That's filling up pretty quick. We're, um, by the way, if you haven't signed up for that and you're anywhere within 1,000 miles, join us. I, I, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Anywhere within 2,000 miles, join us. Uh, it'll be fun. We're going to have a lot of, we have a lot of great speakers, and I think the topic is incredibly relevant. Um, <laughs> how to outrageous grace in a culture of outrage. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're definitely living in a culture of outrage. So, so anyhow, that's, uh, that's what's going on. We've had the prices for the last week and a half, and uh, we will. But I wanted to do the devotion today. I wanted to finish First Peter chapter 5. This is the end today. We're just looking at three verses and it reads uh, like this, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, what do we find out about this letter from Peter in this seemingly mundane little conclusion? I don't know if I, about you, but uh, oftentimes uh, I think I'm tempted to just skip the conclusion of a letter entirely because usually it's filled with, uh, you know, especially in Paul's letters, like uh, greetings to just various names, you know, they greet Rhoda tell her that I'm doing good and that, you know, and make sure that, you know, Bill knows that I'm praying for him. You know, it seems to be very kind of just matter of fact, mundane stuff. Uh, but in fact, the end of the letter can tell you an awful lot about the letter. And that's the case certainly here in first Peter. First of all, it gives us a sense of the letter's authenticity. So, Peter tells us that it was, quote, by Silvanus that he wrote to them. Now, some scholars have taken that to mean Silvanus was his amanuensis, basically a fancy Greek word for secretary that you would declare letters to and then he'd write, write it down. But probably what Peter is actually saying here is that the letter he wrote personally was delivered by Silvanus. Now, who is this Silvanus character, you ask? Well, He's actually referenced all throughout the New Testament. You'll see his name mentioned a lot in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, Acts 16, verse 19, Acts 17, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 1, 19, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, to name a few. And what we find from those references I just mentioned is that Silvanus is the same person as Paul's ministry partner, Silas. So why does that matter? Well, what Peter is saying to his audience is, since you received this letter from a reputable, well-known associate of the apostles, 
you can have certainty that this was really written by an apostle, that this is the real deal. And this is important because already in the first century, there were many false teachers claiming to write on Peter or Paul's behalf to churches. And this is why you'll see the same signature or authenticity, uh, signature of authenticity in Paul's letters. Uh, they wanted to make people certain that they were actually reading real apostolic words because there was all sorts of fakes and imposters. Now, this is quite a contrast from sort of the dark, smoke-filled, conspiracy-filled rooms that Dan Brown or Bart Ehrman or other skeptics of the New Testament will spin for you. There's all sorts of modern writers that will pretend that the Bible was put together by a bunch of meanies in a smoke-filled room that excluded much more lovely Gospels that were destroyed or something to that end. The fact is, and I'm not exaggerating here, there is literally no evidence that that smoke-filled room exists. As a matter of fact, the reason that you have one of the signatures, one of the things that you needed for a, a letter or a gospel to be seen as authoritative or scriptural is you needed to be able to show that it was from an apostle in some way or another. And that leads to the next thing, the letter's authority. Uh, Peter is very clear about the authority behind his word that he shared with them in this letter. Remember, these letters, when they were sent, they were not broken up into pieces like we do for devotions or for sermon series or whatever. They were read all at one shot. Guy, you know, the pastor of the church would get the letter, read it, start to finish. And actually, it doesn't take long to do that. It's pretty short. Um, and so Peter wants them to know, as they come to the, let the end of this letter, that that what he's declared to them is the true grace of God. That's what he says. Quote, the true grace of God. Definite article. Why is that significant? Well, there's no like, hey guys, take what you like, leave what you don't. There's no, well, this is my opinion as, you know, an apostle, but you got to do your own thing. Now to Peter, this is the true grace of God that he's presenting. And by the way, Paul speaks this way, too, in his letters, saying things like, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. So you have the authority the apostles write with is unique. It's, it's strange. But this is important to recognize because, again, the working theory for many scholars is that a group of Orthodox religious meanies thought the Roman, uh, throughout the Roman Empire squelched the other authoritative writings. But no, that's not the case. The apostles, were they were aware. They were conscious of what Jesus had told them as they w went out into their apostolic ministry. Jesus had told them that the Spirit would deliver to them in particular. Uh, all of his words, that he would bring to their remembrance all of his words so that they could write it down and guide the church. This is a promise but given by Jesus on his last night. In the, You can find it in the Gospel of John. Uh, really, chapters 14 through 16 delineate that. And so, again, you see apostolic authority. Peter doesn't say, I'm delivering to you a message about the grace of God. He's saying, I'm delivering to you the grace of God. I have been given authority to do this. Third thing we see in the close of the letter is where Peter wrote this letter from. He writes, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. 
Now, this should not be taken to mean that Peter was in ancient Babylon, a.k.a. Iraq. That's not the case. By this time, we know that Babylon became a code word for the city of Rome. And for very obvious reasons, because throughout Scripture, Babylon becomes this universal symbol of the city of man, of debauchery, of idolatry, and all other things godless. And so it's not surprising that he reassures his audience that, yes, even in the wicked city of Rome, the church there is, quote, likewise chosen. That's his language there. So, and, and by the way, early church history does agree with this assessment that Peter was residing in Rome, actually closing out his days in Rome as the pastor or bishop of the church there and eventually being martyred there in Rome. And I don't think anyone, even the most ardent skeptic, disagrees with that historical fact. It's just too well attested. All right, so uh, also, side note, not as important to our discussion right now, but notice who Peter says he's with. He's with a guy named Mark. Now, who is Mark? Well, you know. You know who that Mark is. It's that Mark. Incidentally, this reference is one of the reasons, along with early church history again, that it's always been believed that Mark's gospel was based on Peter's accounting of the life of Jesus. So if anybody ever wonders, like, why Mark wasn't an apostle, why did Mark get to write a gospel? That's why. Because Mark was taking down the message of what happened in Jesus' life from Peter. And by the way, if you read Mark, it sort of seems like it was written by Peter. Like, you, Mark has the word immediately more than anyone else by far. And he, and he just gets to things really, really quickly. Kind of like old impulsive Peter. But yeah, so that's historically... Mark got that message of the gospel from Peter. Lastly, the letter's purpose. This is really important. So, Peter, what's he gonna, what are you going to leave him with, Peter? What are you going to give me to walk out of church today with? Give me them words of application, bro. No. Finally, in this last statement from Peter, he reiterates his purpose for his writing. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now remember, Peter writes to encourage people who are suffering bitter persecution. His point is to help them endure the difficulties. But notice, please notice, again, please notice, Peter does not urge his readers to merely stand firm. He urges them to stand firm in the grace of God. Peter's purpose is not primarily to make them stronger, but to make them stronger in grace. His primary purpose in this letter is not to just make them endure, but to make them endure in the grace of God. That's the whole point. And really, uh, that's what God is doing in our life. I mean, I think the way, and this just gets to this, and I'll wrap this bad boy up. I think the way that people assume Christian growth happens is by us learning to stand firm on our own. So yes, you get in by the grace of God. Yes, 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 we all agree with this. Of course, we're all saved by grace through faith. Yes, 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 yes. But then you continue on, sort of, you know, 
on your own, or at least with a little less grace. You don't need all that grace. You shouldn't need all that grace when you're 60, 50, you know, 70 years into the faith. You should need a lot less of it. False. False. Peter, Paul, John, and Mary, and whoever else, they all will tell you this is what you need for your entire life. If you're going to stand firm at all, you're going to stand firm because of and in the grace of God. In other words, in the knowledge of the grace of God given for you every single day that you are forgiven, that you are declared righteous because of the, uh, the work of Jesus Christ, and that nothing will ever change that. The more you marinate on that, yes, the more you might just be able to stand firm under the attacks of the outside world around you like Peter's hearers did back then. So, all right, gang, that's it. Give me some ideas for a book that you'd like to go through when I come back. I'm actually going on vacation, uh, so I won't be here for two weeks. Um, so you won't have Tuesday devotions for next week or the week after that. But when I come back, I'm going to be starting a new book. So if you have ideas for books that you might want me to tackle, Old or New Testament, I'm fine with whatever. Uh, throw them in, throw that idea in the comments, and I will definitely uh, take it seriously. All right. Thanks for watching today. We will see you in a couple weeks.